I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this very special occasion. This is just the second, technically first, but I'm claiming second, a crossover between the Empire podcast and the Pilot TV podcast. Oh yes indeed, we did an Alan Partridge celebration uh, about a year and a half ago or so, if you will remember. It's a good episode, check it out if you haven't already. But this one is going to be dedicated to a discussion of the second series of Lenny James' fantastic Sky TV show, Save Me. And in particular, obviously, the second series, which is available for you now to, uh, to stream and to binge and to watch in the comfort of your own home. It is Save Me 2. Joining me over the next hour or so to discuss the, uh, the show and, uh, and all its ins and outs and all its twists and turns and all its ups and downs are some of my finest pilot TV podcast colleagues of such lethal cunning. Terry White, of course. Hello, Terry. Hello. You weren't listening to that, were you? No. <laughs> <laughs> what gave that away? <laughs> uh, Hi, Chris. Just, happy to be here. Yes, I'm happy to. I'm. I'm also happy to be here. I feel like an interloper, uh, but this is technically an empire thing, so I guess you guys are interlopers here. I don't know. Um, James Dyer is also here, which is nice, I guess. Hello, Christopher. We're doing well, actually. Terry wasn't listening. Boyd had his TV on, and we've just asked him to turn it off. Uh, but you know, we'll get there. We'll get there. We're all professionals here. <laughs> We're all professionals here. Yeah. Clearly, you haven't listened to a single one of these podcasts. And uh, and last, but very much least, uh, we are joined by TV's Boyd Hilton, a man so addicted to TV, he was actually recording this podcast whilst watching the TV with the sound turned up. <laughs> Hello, Boyd. Uh, apologies, yeah. It was the Parliamentary Select Committee report on the coronavirus, coronavirus so I felt I had to... Oh, yeah, like, that's important. And over the next hour or so, we're going to be discussing the ups and downs and twists and the turns of this six-episode series. But first, let's hear from the man behind it. Uh, Lenny James, of course, is the writer, the creator, and the star of the show in in sendry form this series as Nelly. And uh, Boyd and I spoke to him. Lenny is in Austin, Texas uh, right now. He's on lockdown, as are we all. Uh, he's probably having a much better time for it than we are, in fairness. Uh, but Boyd and I spoke to him yesterday, and we had a great many questions, and he was absolutely fantastic. Here we go. Lenny James. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on this Joint Empire slash Pilot TV podcast, spoiler special for Save Me Too, with our show's writer, creator... And star, of course, all the way from Austin, Texas, far removed from London these days, Lenny James. How are you, sir? I am good, matey. Everything good, lockdown-wise. You're okay. Slow. You're not. You're not going mad slowly in a in a room. You know what? We're we're kind of um, three weeks into it, a little over three weeks into it, and it's uh, it's become a kind of routine. Um, mm. You know, the the trick that's kind of working for me at the moment is remembering uh, the weekdays and separating them from the weekends and trying not to make every day Sunday. So, you know, yeah. uh, getting dressed, making it look like, you know, that I got something to do and um, trying to achieve something every day. Um, I got a dog, so I get out and do a little bit of exercise, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a strange one as it is for everybody, I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, having said that, Boyd and I, we we pretty much are doing what we we already did. We're sitting on our arses watching films and writing about films, and that's pretty much it. Hasn't TV, Chris, we're talking about TV. 
TV boy. Yeah, that's right. I got you, but yeah. you dabble. You dabble sometimes. As I well. dabble, and I'm yeah, dabbling right. now yeah. as well with TV. Yeah. What, a, what, a, what a world! What a time to be alive. Peak um, TV. But, well, there's a change. Now you're both dabbling in each other's ponds. That's a. Oh, I know. It is. It, You're about to very, find out um, how little we know about each other's yeah. <laughs> fields in, in, a, in a few seconds. So, I mean, are you getting a chance to, to write? Are you, you know, because I, I've spoken to a few actors who've been in lockdown and for actors you know, who act, it might be quite tricky, but... You're also a writer, so are you getting the chance to work on some Save Me while, whilst you're on, under lockdown? Um, I, I am, yeah. I'm doing little bits. I'm kind of putting together um, ideas for stuff just because it would be remiss of me um, not to, really. You've got to use this time for something. And I, I, I have a very firm feeling that I want to come out of the, the other side. And when someone says to you, what did you do during the pandemic of 2020? I want to be able to say, I did this, or I came <laughs> up with this, or that's when I came up with the idea for this particular series or film or play or whatever. Yeah. So I'm trying to keep myself busy. I'm trying to catch up on the ideas that I've had and haven't had and um, read some scripts that I've been sent. So I'm, like I said, I'm trying to make every day productive. So what we're doing is we're going to we're going to do a deep dive into Save Me Too. And one of the things that uh, the, the the place I wanted to start with is essentially the end in a way. Um, because when you sat down to write this series, how much of it did you know? How much of, of Nelly's journey did you know? Did you know where it was going to go? Uh, case in point, Nick Murphy on Twitter the other day said that whenever you guys cast uh, Olive as Grace, that even though it was for basically one scene in the last series, that you knew that she would be a, a huge part of this series. So how much did you know? I pretty much knew everything that you've seen up until this point. Um, uh, give or take um, not necessarily all of the characters I knew what happened after the first six episodes and I knew what happened after the second six episodes I knew the role that um, Grace would be playing in the first season and in the second season um, I knew the ultimate dilemma that her introduction was going to cause Nelly a kind of you know um, the ultimate choice that he had to make between the girl that he's not related to but feels like is his daughter and the girl that is his daughter but he has no relationship with. I knew that was going to be his big dilemma in um, season two and what we were going to be exploring. Um, the one thing I wasn't absolutely clear about but did have ideas about it um, quite early on um, in writing the, fir the first season was the character of Jennifer, Leslie Manville's character. That one kind of um, evolved um, much more as I was writing it. In, in what way? In, in, in terms of her function within the story or, uh, or as a character and how she relates to, to Nelly? Well, it was one of those where it kind of, in order to, um, one, you know, Olive wasn't the only character, from, uh, only actor from the first season who I knew would have a larger role in the second season. That was also true of A.B.'s character. Um, Gideon and I knew that Gideon would have a, a larger role in the second one and when I was trying to nail down uh, Gideon's story I you know I just started thinking about um, people who people who have kept secrets from from their loved ones their significant others and um, actually it came from um, there was an article after 9-11 where um, which went round to families who had lost people in 9-11 and things that they had found out about them after they had died. And it wasn't all bad stuff and, uh, at all. Some of it was really good stuff. And one of the stories that stuck, stuck with me, which is 
completely different to what happens with Jennifer, but it was just a story of, of not knowing. Um, one of them was a story of a, a guy who was a kind of investment banker and lived um, in upstate New York with his wife and two young children. And unbeknownst to them, that there's something they didn't find out until after 9-11 was that every Tuesday evening and Thursday evening, he coached baseball down in the, uh, the community that he grew up in. It was wow. just that. And they never knew and he kept it secret and his wife and, and wife and family didn't realize until all of these kids from the Lower East Side, black and brown kids showed up at his funeral. And <laughs> that's when they found out. And she had genuinely no idea. And I just thought, that's really interesting. What if Gideon's wife had genuinely no idea about this side of his uh, this side of his life, this side of his character? That it wasn't that she thought there was something a bit odd about him, but chose not to look in that corner. It just she just didn't know. It just wasn't there. Nobody knew. He was very good at keeping it a, a secret. What, who would that make him, and what would that do to her? And when I started with those questions, it just opened up. And I had Leslie in mind for it. And the minute you start writing with the hope or the, uh, the inspiration of an actress like Leslie, it can go anywhere. And that's where it went. And that's, that's really interesting in terms of, because uh, I think there's a, a, a note of ambivalence about that in the first couple of episodes, at least, where you're not sure, where Nellie's not sure about Jennifer. And I think as a result, the audience isn't sure either. Uh, but there's a moment where she goes to Gideon's house and she gasps when she sees the wallpaper. And I think that's the moment that I think we realize that this was all new to her, that this that, that, the, that the, the idea that her husband uh, is was a monster is is a revelation to her as well as us yeah that was a pivotal scene that was a pivotal scene when she couldn't you know because she was also put i also put her in a really horrible situation whereby you know it's revealed to i don't think she has any doubt but that her husband has been involved in something nefarious um but she like most people are trying to hold on to what is her life because as she says when she's talking to her sister He's her name. He's been the last 30 years of her life. And she doesn't want to let that go. So when he asks her, will you sit with me through this trial? Um, you know, and he's found, he's found some version of, a, of the, tr the truth that will encourage her to support him through the trial. Because if his wife doesn't show up to the trial, you know, the, uh, the prosecution can go, not even his wife believes him. Why should the, the members of the jury believe him? He, you know, so he asks her to kind of... Um, be there and now she's caught in this horrible situation because now she has to sit in court um, and listen to all the evidence against her husband and um, and she's trying as hard as she can to be strong and get through it and then she walks into the room and she can't hide from it anymore and um, that moment of shock was a was vital in their relationship and in um, the growing relationship between Jennifer and, Nell and Nellie. In that relationship between Jennifer and Nellie, which is so interesting, that develops at first, you, you, don't, you can't believe uh, that she doesn't know about her husband. And then slowly and steadily, you, you grow to believe it. And, that, and I think, you know, obviously, Leslie Manville's performance, she's so kind of dignified, isn't she? She kind of uses that dignity, yeah. I feel like it helps incredibly. You said, I remember when we spoke um, before the series went out, you said that you'd filmed quite a few scenes with the two of you and that not, maybe not necessarily all of them would make it into the final edit. Did, did they all make it in or were there some scenes that you cut out between the two of you? Yeah, or there was there was um, there was both 
um, scenes we couldn't um, use and then there was, uh, you know, some of the scenes we did use, there was just more of them. That always kind of happens. It absolutely breaks my heart um, and it happened quite a lot. There were a number of, there were a few scenes, not so many between me and Leslie because Leslie's so spot on and part of her story, the way we're t we told her story through it, we kind of used almost everything that we shot. Um, the scene in the cafe, the opening scene in the cafe was much longer and um, and there were a couple more twists and turns in there. There was a bit more in the supermarket. Um, uh, the, sh the scene outside the courtroom, there was that was pretty much in its entirety. When she comes to the pub, that's, that's it. There was a phone call um, between them that we lost. But um, it is the hardest thing um, mm. uh, after you've shot it all is the scenes that you have to lose for the edit. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, yeah, but you I never get I never get used to it. I just <laughs> every time I go, oh, I can't believe it. There's a scene that I was very proud of, um, which was uh, the morning after um, and Nelly and Zeta spend the night together after he has his breakdown in at the beginning of episode five after he mm. brought Jody back and the pub comes to celebrate and mm. um, uh, the morning after after Nelly's you know, jumped out of her bed and gone to search the red car. Uh, there was a scene that I wrote, which was um, Zeta leaving the pub and getting caught by Stace and, um, and them having a conversation about where they are and who they are and what, what's kind of going on. And I missed that scene hugely. I mean, it didn't necessarily move plot along, but it was a great moment ab about these two women having a conversation about who they are to Nelly without once mentioning his name. And do they go just because purely because of running time issues or? They go because of running time issues. They go because they might make sense in the, in the script, but actually we need to get from point A to, to point C or D without going through, you know, B and C as it were. So mm. um, it, you, you discover it in the edit. You always, miss it i missed that one which is why i mention it and there was an, mm. another scene between stace and nelly that i really really miss when he kind of comes to her to ask her to use her computer but it's not really about using her computer to print up the different warehouse places that he's going to go and look for paul okay uh, that's that's a relationship they uh, with 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 stace that seems to be more important uh, this this series um and there are other relationships that come to the fore as well sita is uh, i would say more important in this, in this series as well um it's not something as you say you knew what you were doing you you had this this these six episodes mapped out before you started to write so was that something you'd always planned that other characters would would, would come to the fore yes absolutely i mean it was it was, you know, um, it was very much that the kind of, um, it was Claire and Barry, it was uh, a little bit of Goz and Daisy, and it was um, Melon and and Bernie in the kind of first one and Nelly's relationship with teens. But in the second one, it was very much I wanted to, particularly when I, as I was moving it 17 months into the future, I just wanted to see the different things that had changed and, and bring in different perspectives and tell people's story in a slightly different pace and um, and get behind the door of different characters. I wanted to explore Tam. Um, there were, again, talking about the edit, there was some stuff between Nelly and Stace that we, that didn't make the cut 
in the first season that I really wanted to explore. I wanted to explore the, their friendship and mm. that it was that it was based on on a friendship and a history and and no one in the pub, no one on the estate, no one in his life knows Nelly as well as Stace knows Nelly. And I wanted to um, explore what that would do um, with our central theme and who she would be. And she is right from the off. She's just worried for her best mate. She's worried because she knows him and she knows what he might do. She's worried because she knows him and she knows the mistakes he might make and how far he might go. He prob- she probably knows it better than he knows it himself. When you're juggling all of these elements, and there's even more to juggle in this in this second series than there was in the first, did you always know, was it hard to know where to place the key moment in episode four of um, Nelly finding Jodie? Did you always think that's, it has, that's where it's going to come? Or did you ever think of other options for that? I mean, you, you know, a traditional crime drama might have left that till the final episode, for example. I, I thought about it in the final episode and I thought that that didn't help me. That, that idea of it in the final episode didn't work for me at all because it didn't, it didn't push the dilemma between um, Nelly and Jody, And also the story I was always telling um, wasn't all about finding Jody. It was about what the search for fi- to find Jody did to Nelly and, and therefore did to the people around him what it did to Claire and therefore the people around her, what it did to her marriage, what it did to Barry, what it did to her world and um, what it did to Nellie's world. So it was, we were always, as far as I was concerned, going to find Jody and continue. We weren't going to find Jody and that be the, the end of it because I don't think it is. There's the whole re-entry for her and the things that she has to go through and ultimately the issues that she's going to face. But um, there was a moment where... Um, finding Jodie was at the end of Act Three, um, um, Episode Three. That didn't really work for me. There was a, a one where it happened at the beginning of Episode Four. That didn't really, really work. And there was one actually where it was in Episode Five, and that was too late. And it kind of just found itself really in the conversations I have. Basically, the structure of how we put together the episodes, um, because I don't. I don't write the first drafts of all of the episodes. So this time around, I did episode one. Um, Daniel and Marlon did episode two. Uh, Ema did episode three. I did episode four, five, and six. But I break the story for all of them. Um, and I mostly do that with Simon Heath and Jess Sykes, um, my co-producer and my agent. And we sit in a room and we just break the story we go what are we, what's happening in this episode where does it come and do that and then you know either myself or uh, daniel or marlon go off and write the episode we bring it back and we break it down again and they do another draft and that's how we kind of um get through it and it just it landed where it landed because that was the right way to for that's what felt best for us to tell the story I think it works brilliantly. But did you also that moment preceded by there's the moment, isn't there, leading up to you finding her where Nelly finding her where he see glimpses her in that park and it's not her and it's just like an apparition. So that which is incredible because then that that from then on you're not quite sure whether he really does see her when he finds her or not and he does that incredible double take. Was all of that in in the script or did did some of that kind of turn out when you were filming it? Because the whole way it's done is extraordinary. It was all in the script. I mean, um, Koki shot it fantastically and captured the ideas fantastically. But right from 
the first time you see Nelly in season two and he sat in the car and there's blood on his hands and he turns and on the railing to the side of him, there's Jody, And he kind of shakes her away from, I had it right from that moment. In fact, I remember when we were finishing up last season, I was talking to Rajivan and Tom Coombs um, and basically saying goodbye to Rajivan because he knew he wasn't going to be coming back because he got hit by a van. But... Um, <laughs> But uh, what I remember, you know, we were in the palm and we were having um, a kind of uh, goodbye in the, in the palm. And I, they said, what's happening in season two? Do you know? And I go, yeah. And I talked to them and I said, I think that was the first time I said it out loud that when Nelly finds Jody, it's completely by accident. He's looking mm-hmm. for something. He's looking for something else at that particular moment in time. And, and, and there she is. And, it's, and that was always going to be the moment. So everything was, you know, everything was for, for, for Nelly certainly was leading up to the complete accidental finding of his daughter. I loved that. I thought it was absolutely terrific because I think what you do with this, this series is that you, um, you shift the emphasis onto Grace. Uh, not just for the audience, but for for Nelly as well. I mean, Jodie's always there. I mean, you know, there are manifestations of her as as we've talked about, but it it feels almost like he's moved on in a way that he's given up in in a, in a weird way. And I think as audience members, we think that's it. Jodie has 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 gone, and the show has shifted onto something else. So that moment when he finds her is such a great great revelation uh, was that always the idea that to, to maybe early on move the emphasis onto onto grace and onto the the the, yeah. the mystery by gideon's murder yeah it was it was it was uh, completely the idea because i just the the whole thing was about you know um uh um the ripples that are sent out when a single person goes i'm going to do this thing and then they start doing this thing and then it's a it's about the life that it takes out takes on on its own really so um yeah that was always part of the journey that was the whole point of the the creation really of uh, grace as a character because once he had saved her um and once he had got her out of the caravan even though it was a bit of a setup um he is responsible for her life he has he has taken on a role where as far as she's concerned he's the police are now aware of her, social services are now aware of her, she's being looked after, and all of that is down to Nelly carrying her out of um, the caravan. So I wanted to explore that, really. I just, I mean, each time I'm just, we take a situation, basically one of the things we say a lot when we're working out the story is we sit in, sit in it and we, you know, like with the police investigation, what would happen after Jody's been found, what would be the involvement of the police thereafter? And our um, uh, David Zinzan, who's our police advisor, will say to us, this, 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 and this, and this, and this happen. And then we go, okay, great, thank you very much. How do we make it save me? And then we, you know, we mix it up and make it our story. How does it, mm. and, and by, do, by saying that, what we mean is, how, does, um, how would our characters interact with that? What would it do for our characters? And if it's not being seen or it's not affect, it doesn't affect one of our characters, it doesn't have a role in the, in the, in the story. Your performance in that scene is incredible as well. And did, as an actor, how, I mean, obviously you'd written it. Did you know how you're going to do it? Because it feels like an incredibly like, real, authentic moment of how someone might react in this huge moment in their life. And yeah, it feels like kind of almost counterintuitive the way he behaves and the, there's something very unique about that moment. Did you always know how you're going to kind of do that moment? Um, 
that team fucked me up every single time I played it. It fucks me up every single time I talk about it. It fucked me up in the read through. It messed me up when we were, were, were playing it because for me, it's, it's the one time where the writer and the actor Lenny kind of were both in the same room at the same time. And I, I fight quite hard to keep them kind of separate. But that one, I found that scene, it was so much about controlling Nelly's emotions than it was about kind of um, letting them out. It broke me every single, every single time that scene because it was everything. Um, it's almost breaking me now talking about it, but it's, um, but it, it was, it's the pivotal scene as far as I'm concerned for Nelly and I, and, um, uh, but it's also, it's kind of the first time Nelly's met his kid. Mm. It's kind of the, it's the first, it's the first time he's met Jody. Um, you know, before she was the, you know, the little girl and he never said a word to her. These are the first words he's spoken to his child in person. And it's to say, you don't know who I am. And it just floored me every single time. So did I know how I was going to play it? No, not really. It was a scene that I kind of was shying away from quite a lot and was a little bit frightened of. But Koki was, a, you know, was very, very helpful and that was the, I, I had mentioned in an um, in an interview that there was a, a very tricky scene, and the director came in and saved me from it. And that was the scene. She just went, "I can't put you through this anymore," and called time on it. So it was always very instinctual. There were versions of it where he was a bit more of a mess. There was versions of it where um, where he was a little bit more in control. But I think the tone that they hit, which was, you know, that he's absolutely honest which is when he says i don't know what to do here it's because he doesn't know what to do and um and i thought that that was real i know what television would do but my question is what would what would nelly do and and i think nelly would just for a minute be in the moment and just go I, i'm 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 you know and and the fact that he is looking at his daughter and she's frightened of him and what would Nelly do is an interesting mantra that, that essentially drives the next two episodes as well, in that uh, he has two episodes to wrestle with the idea that Jody is back in his life, but he also has, has Grace, and Grace is potentially going to go down for, for Gideon's murder. And he makes the choice that he makes at the end of the, of the series, uh, Lenny. And what can you say about that, about the idea that Nelly is purposefully sacrificing the potential of a life with Jody? to save Grace. Do you, is, is that what the save me refers to? Is that, is that, is that about her? I think it's possibly one of them. I don't think it's the only one. I think it's the moment where, again, television would say Nelly's the hero and he deserves to ride off into the, um, you know, the sunset and he'd be patted on the back. And it's partly the reason why there is the scene at the beginning of episode five when he comes back and he should be kind of walking in the pub going, oi, oi, and being king, <laughs> king of the hill. Um, and he doesn't because, he, you know, and, you know, you can see that they're, you know, they're loading up pints in front of him and he's not touching one of them. He's having a <laughs> massive physical reaction to what's done. And I think it's about the, uh, for me, it was about the realisation of, of, um, I think Nelly was absolutely prepared to fail. He wasn't prepared to succeed and he succeeded it and, and it knocks him for six. And he suddenly is like, I don't know. 
he doesn't know what to do with it and he's frightened of it because he could have walked away. He could have just kept on going and gone, that's just her in the park again. And he could have kept on going and he nearly did. And, um, and that moment just scares him about how, 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 how arbitrary the whole thing was. And, and then he thinks, well, he did that. So why can't he just rock up to Paul's place and mm-hmm. solve, it for, solve it for Grace now? So he'll just rock up, he'll go out, and of course he's going to find Paul, and he finds Paul, and he's in there with Paul, and he, and he fancies himself against Paul, and Paul lays him flat with one punch and a chisel. And um, so he's suddenly uh, uh, kind of aware of himself, and he tries to save the situation by going, by going back, and Paul's buggered off, and he knows what that's going to be. He knows that search for Paul is going to be never-ending and during on a, during all of that time Grace is going to be um, uh, uh, kind of uh, locked up and held and held on Gideon's murder and it's, it's, it's not necessarily going to help her and then he has the situation of realizing that the Paul that he's let go is the same Paul who took his kid and he's like he's just he's just blown it and for both of them you know, when he reaches towards her to say goodnight, when she's wet herself and got in the car, she shrinks away from him again. Mm. And he's like, you know, like he says in the hotel, in the hospital room, you're better off without me. You were better mm. off without me. I might not be better off without you, but you are better off without me. And who he thought he was, he isn't. He's Nelly Rowe. And the best thing he can do is, is sacrifice himself, is the conclusion that he comes to. Yeah, because there's a recurring line, isn't there, where, where um, he says, I'm not as clever as I think I am. And other people tell him he's not as clever as he thinks he is. Yeah. Um, I guess to emphasize that this is, is you know, he's, this is a guy who's doing incredible things and he's living an incredible, through an incredible time in his life and, and, and finding joy and all this stuff. But actually, he's a kind of normal, very flawed human being. Yes. And, every, and all the time, I just, you know, I'm playing with the fact that this is a thriller and it has the rules of a, of a kind of thriller, but it's based in a kind of reality. The fact that, you know, at the end, you know, I think in the first series, there was, there was a, a, a proportion of the people who watched it who felt that him not finding Jodie at the end of episode six was unsatisfactory. For me, I was like, like life doesn't, Life doesn't play out like that, and I'm really sorry that you know um, that people kind of the people that felt that felt that. But it was always meant to be an ongoing uh, an ongoing story. And then when he does find her, it's for me. I had to make it make sense in reality because the the re- the real real is he's not going to find her. It's not going to be him who finds her. It's gonna it's going to be the police if it's going to be anybody because they're the ones who almost always do it. It's very 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 rare that a member of the public, particularly one with no experience in investigation, um, solves a crime. It's very very rare. And so if if that was going to be the case in our story, I had to come up with a an, a, a situation whereby that rarity felt real. And um, and that's the that you know, that's how we came up with what we had but you know so all the way along the line i'm trying to marry the tropes of a thriller with the real life situation of this south london estate and the and the man who feels that he's you know cock of the walk and that was that's always been my navigation and that's why we end up where we end up at the moment where we end up is with uh nelly staring at a 
potentially long stretch. And uh, uh, what can you say at the moment about a third season of Save Me? Uh, how far how far are you down that down that road, um, and what can we expect? Um, I'm having conversations about it. I'll be absolutely honest with you. Um, I'm having conversations about it. Uh, I think Sky are interested uh, in in a third one. I'm um, I'm interested in the uh, in the possibility of it. I haven't had the trigger idea yet that pushes me into kind of writing it. There are some obvious places that you would play about, you know, how far um, can Nelly pull off this confession, how far it would possibly go, how much it would stand up if you're investigating it. There is Nadine Marshall, who plays O'Halloran, does a fantastic job in that scene because she's like, I ain't buying it. I don't know, mm. you know, and she understands what's kind of what he's trying. And she's like, oh, Jesus, are we really going to do this dance? All right. You know, so there is <laughs> all of that possibility. There is also the possibility, as you say, what it does to his relationship to with Jody, um, you know, what it does to his relationship with um, Grace, how the wider community feel about it. Um, but, it, you know, and what he does and how it, you know, leads into getting Paul or not getting Paul and whether or not that's kind of part of it. So all of those elements are there. Um, I just need the, the trigger idea. And that one hasn't quite landed with me yet. But it is definitely something um, we're exploring and we're, um, and we're talking about um, but I can't promise it at this particular moment, at right now, at this particular moment in time. But it is obviously something that's on my list. Nelly's iconic jacket. You know, it's incredible that it's become iconic in such a <laughs> such a short space of time. But it has. And and this time, you 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 know, there's obviously symbolism to it as well, and what it means to us, the audience, and what it means to Nelly. But you also work it into the plot in a very interesting way. It's Gideon's blood that uh, he uses his old jacket at the end as proof that he pulled off this this murder. Can you talk about what the, what the jacket, what the puffer means this time around? Well, the the puffer kind of it's it's one of the nods I took, one of the. Um, the influences that I took from the popularity of the first series and the fact that out in the world amongst the fan base, the yellow puffer became iconic as it were. So, um, and my, I, I think I said this to Boyd once before, um, that I had actually um, written in the birthday scene when he receives the present from Stace and he rips it open. I had written that it was a red puffer that he, would, he had given, and I, he was given. I had this kind of idea that, you know, series one would be a yellow puffer, series two would be a red puffer, series three would be a green or orange or different kind of puffer, and we'd work it in, and that would be a little gag for the fans. And I wrote in the red puffer, and everybody, Sky, Jess, Simon, everybody at World, everybody who read the script went, are you insane? Why are you changing the jacket? It's got to be... A, a yellow one. So um, I took that note and then again had to come up with something that is real within our story and within our world that would mean after 17 months of looking for his daughter, Nelly's still wearing the same jacket. And that's why it became that he considered um, finding um, Grace, even though he didn't find Jody, as being lucky and that he had got that far. And he put that down to 
the puffer um, and changed as little as is humanly possible. And he wanted his kid to see him coming. And um, and so the the puffer then made sense to me and I could go forward. And it creates, again, that fantastic moment between Nelly and Stace in the middle of this celebration that um, he kind of rejects her birthday present. And the idea of tying it in as well, that it actually becomes a piece of evidence at the end. Was yeah, that, 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 that one... No, I didn't have that all along. That came in the right. That came in the writing of the episode. I just, I kind of, when I was trying to, you know, get to the point of how does Nelly incriminate himself? I always knew that he was going to, you know, put his prints on the knife. Um, I always knew that he would, you know, use other stuff. But I needed one other thing, and um, and uh, and the blood on the jacket was just a, a lovely kind of touch. It was the one moment actually where my my wife went um, that she kind of guessed ahead that the moment she saw the blood on the jacket, she went, I know what he's going to do. I don't believe her, but that's what she says. And, um, and some people won't. So I, I did a pause at, at one point just because my missus, when I, uh, as soon as I read that, I knew he was going to give himself in. And I was like, I'm not sure he did, but um, we, we kept oh, a hold know. of it. Good. Yeah, um, yeah. We kept we kept we kept a hold of it. Um, uh, even so, and I think it, it it's a, it's a lovely touch. I wanted to ask very quickly how involved you get in involved you get in the music choices. So there are some. I thought there were some really interesting. You know, not routine. You got there's a there's a Mazzy Star song that's used the moment where you bring Jodie back to the family, which I thought was incredible, moving and a Jacob Banks song um, towards the end. Do you get involved in those choices? Are they yours, or do you, is there a music? guy who, or woman who sorts that out it's pete savile um oh. who who does it he's the kind of music coordinator and I, I i think he does it in association with the with the directors and the editors and with dustin o'halloran who's our composer who composes our original music and they you're absolutely right they do a fantastic they do a fantastic job and the the, the as involved as I get is a bit like I do with set design or costume or, you know, um, lighting or, you know, sometimes in the edit um, is that I will be given the options. And, you know, once they've been whittled down to two or three options, I'll have a say about, you know, let's go with option A as opposed to option B. But I, I don't presume to be an expert in other people's field in fact one of the things that this experience of um both on save me and save me too one of the big joys i've got is kind of providing this kind of blueprint that allows people to um to do their job so so well like pete and the music and and i particularly love um jacob banks as a find and how that song kind of came around we went around it a little bit we went away from it and then there was one where we had composed music over that sequence but um i just i had never heard of jacob banks um before and um and i've been playing him non-stop ever, ever since i heard that track and i think i've now got every single piece of music every single song <laughs> every live performance, every recorded performance wow. that he's got, I've got it downloaded on the thing. I just, I just love it, really. And I think his voice is perfect for that moment mm. because it's almost, yeah. it's not, and, you know, I'd love to think that I could sing like that, but it sounds like Nelly's 
singing. Yes. And yes. Um, and it, it's just a, it's like Nelly saying goodbye, and it's a it's a it's a great mo- moment, and it really enhances that. But that's a that's a cokey call with Pete, as are the, the music in the first three are you know are Jim Loach's calls with with Pete and Dustin, and they 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 do a fantastic job. Lenny, but we're going to let you go. But I just want to ask one real quick last thing, if if it's if it's possible, um, about the title of the show and about the title of of this season, and uh, and and how it's kind of transformed a little bit. I think once you watch these six episodes, uh, and, and that, you know that the Me Too movement has come to the fore in the in the time between the first and the second seasons, uh, and this is very much about a man. Who, in, in, in a way, himself, Nelly is a little bit of a you know suffers a little bit from toxic masculinity as well. Yeah. But he's about a man saving women whose lives have been torn apart by by violence. Um, so, does that transform the title? Was was the title deliberate in, in a way? Um, I'd be lying if I said it was um, it was too connected to say uh, to um, uh, me too. But obviously, the moment I said I want it to be called Save Save Me Too, and the two being T O O, um, the reference was, you know, people were instantly asking me, is it to do with Me Too and all of that, and um, and it was in the, only in the sense that it is about that that version of the title makes you think about who else that um is is up for being saved who else on this journey is is being rescued and it is ostensibly about um uh young women who are um being kind of uh, violently held against their will and used in in kind of horrible ways but it's also about the people who care about them and are involved with them and are affected by what's happened. So, you know, for me, um, when I was writing it, there was, you know, I, I was, I would think about the characters like Jennifer and she, she kind of needs saving and Nellie and he needs saving. And, you know, in the relationship between Daisy and Goz, it's Daisy's job to save Goz from himself and for, his you know his love for um for nelly but and then there's other people who are you know are helping out and saving so it was about a kind of um realization that you know any rescuing any saving that was going on a bit like the village that it takes to raise a child there's a kind of village that it takes to save one as well Mm, absolutely, and it's interesting. For example, Nelly makes a phone call to Jennifer right at the end of the of the of the last episode, as yeah. well. And uh, uh, we don't really entirely see how that plays out. So I, I presume that's something that, that might be on the board for for series three. Yeah, but we also we see the beginning of it because the lawyer who walks in and introduces himself to um, to Grace and says, "Let's try and help you through this situation." He's he's been sent there by Jennifer. So mm, okay. that's that's the that's the first part of Jennifer's help, let's say. Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, Lenny, I wish you all the best on on lockdown. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, and all the best. Hopefully, one day we will get to say uh, we will get to see Save Me Three or Free. If you want to use a play on words and, and have have Nelly breaking out of prison, that's an idea. You can take it. You can play with it if you want. It's entirely up to you. If I do, if I do, I will give you credit, maybe. <laughs> 
Uh, let's hope it doesn't come to that because that, that yeah. sounds absolutely terrible. <laughs> well, you know, we'll make it work. We'll make it work one way or another. Lenny, do not take ideas from me. Do not. No, okay. No. There's a reason yeah, why I'm here in a second. Year there. Don't. Uh, yeah, don't. Yeah, Boyd will second that indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure, Matt. Thank you so much indeed, and uh, and best of luck with everything. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute joy. And, and Boyd, thank you very much for how you've supported Save Me and how you've kind of championed it. It means a lot, and and um, and I'm very grateful. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's phenomenal. Thank you. Okay, so that was Lenny James. Uh, very illuminating, very revealing chat about Save Me Two. And uh, let's get into it now, everybody. And uh, Terry, I don't think it's pulling the curtain back too much to to say that we're we're doing this. We're all fans of the show, but you really flipped for this. I mean, you, you texted me going, "We have to do a Save Me Two spoiler special because I've just seen." Series two, and it's absolutely incredible. And there's things I need to talk about. That's correct. I think it, I would describe it as frenzied late night WhatsApp messages. Yes, but... I had to block you. <laughs> Not for the first time. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we all loved season one, but it has been, there's been such a long gap, which is obviously reflected in the gap between season one and season two where it picks up so you know a year and a half basically and I think I'd forgotten just how amazing it was and I revisited season one before season two started and absolutely was blown away by it again possibly even more than the first time and then season two just I think was a whole new level I have to say and I think Lenny James is such a unique and singular talent. I can't think of anyone really who is writing that kind of pacey, compelling, forensically plotted thriller while also creating this incredible human drama about a group of people that you don't really see on telly done with such richness and warmth. And just, the, I mean, the characters, the characters are unlike anything else you see on telly. Lenny James aside, who I think, by the way, is one of the greatest TV characters of recent times in terms of being complicated and interesting and flawed and we'll get into all of that I'm sure but Boyd's made the point before which is that supporting cast of characters any single one of them could probably have their own series I just think as a show it's so rich and I think he made some really bold narrative choices this time around the structure and things like that which I think just took it to a whole new level so yeah for me series two I have to say has ended up being the best thing I've seen on telly so far this year blimey Better Call Saul is uh, knocking at the door <laughs> I and asking to be let in but uh, <laughs> but uh, no I think this 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 series is tremendous uh, absolutely tremendous Boyd where, where do you stand on it yeah I agree I think I, I watched it again in, in preparation for for talking to Lenny um, and and then I also rewatched um, the end of the last series because I'd kind of I hadn't rewatched that um, like Terry had so I'd kind of actually I kind of forgotten about the whole Luke element because Terry mm. sent us a few questions we didn't have time to talk about Luke with Lenny uh, unfortunately but that was a whole element I'd kind of almost forgotten about and he was he was that was a, a brilliant little finale where they locked him in the pub and you know all of that that climax mm. of series series one was incredible and tense and sick making almost the whole the whole. Um, scenario where Lenny had to go to this horrible place with all the uh, child abusers and bid for his own kid in theory all of that that whole thing was incredible but I think series two for me like it is a step up and series one was one of the best things of that year anyway but I think the way he's brought in new characters the way he's um, the way he established the relationship with Grace the girl he found instead of his own daughter and then had this extraordinary situation where 
he has to choose essentially between does he does he try and look after grace and fulfill all the promises he's made to grace and that relationship that's been established over you know three or four episodes and then when he finds his daughter Jodie he has to work out how to help her and how to deal with her that is an incredible kind of gut-wrenching um, dilemma that he establishes and, it, and on one level there's a lot of stuff that happens in series two I think that we should talk about I'm sure which could be considered slightly contrived that being one of them you know he's got these two two in the end he's got these two um, possible paths to follow between these two young women in his life and yeah and there's an and he finds Jody kind by chance we'll talk about that so there's a lot of chance going on and coincidence a bit which people often find difficult to take in in drama but somehow he makes it work and it feels mm. real and I believe all of that because it's so brilliantly written and acted and directed all of those elements the writing is is just unbelievable when you're watching it again little moments little little moments of dialogue there's a scene in episode in series two towards the end where Grace is terrified that he's going to abandon her. And she says, you're going to scrape me off. And I thought, I thought, I don't think I even noticed that line the first time I watched it, but scrape me off is such a brilliantly little, it's almost like a throwaway moment, you know, scrape me off as this dirty little thing in your life while you go and focus on your actual daughter and all of that. Just moments like that, I think, oh my God, his writing is unbelievable. So yeah, it's as a whole, the whole thing was elevated in series two to me to being one of the best things Definitely the best thing I've seen this year, but also like proper classic TV drama, old school, you know, Ken Loach when he was doing TV and Mike Lee and all of that, plus the thriller crime drama element. I don't have a huge problem with the the element of chance or with the the element Mm. of coincidence because it's not like it comes out of nowhere. It right. kind of does. I think he lulls the audience into a bit of a false sense of of, of insecurity in a way that you think Jody, you you've banished Jody from your mind almost. He hasn't because he's still, you know, we'll, we'll talk about episode four in detail, but he's still thinking about Jody all the time. But he finds Jody because she's inextricably linked with that world. So it makes sense to me that he would ultimately find it. But we'll talk about that in in, in a few seconds mm. as well. Jimbo, where do you, where do you stand on on Save Me Two in in comparison to the the first series in particular? Uh, I was obsessed obsessed with season one or series one, I should say, since it's a British show. Um, when it first aired, so it first aired when we were working on the very first uh, first issue of pilot, and I just could not get enough of this. And I think it's a very the, the first series is, has a very tight setup. You know, it's the missing girl, it's the mystery of where she is, and then it very quickly goes down into this horrific underworld of paedophiles and child auctions, and it becomes more and more harrowing as it goes along. And that lock in that that Boyd mentions, which is kind of at the finale of season one, is absolutely chilling. Just how this all came together, that you know, the, the setup that it was just this guy who didn't really like him in the pub these two students these two kids who just didn't like his character very much therefore so catfished his daughter and basically sold her to a paedophile like there's a level of sort of like cold-blooded sort of sociopathy there that's really really chilling and it's incredibly well sort of Drag, not dragged out, but sort of drawn out. The way he plays it, and I think the, the thing with this show is it wrong foots me at every single turn because I'm so used to watching a lot of, let's be honest, network-based American sort of shows where you kind of have a broad idea, always of where it's going to go, and you kind of always think you understand the decisions that the protagonist will make and what they will do. And Nelly is a very different type of protagonist, and the decisions he makes are not the decisions that your standard protagonist would often make. And often he employs incredibly poor judgment but it goes in different directions and it's always led with his gut and this sort of sense of sort of rightness that he has inside him uh and i constantly found myself 
two steps behind him. Like I was, I was never really able to work out where it was going, and that that followed through for for series two. Like I didn't know where this was going from one episode to the next. Like every every time I thought I kind of had it figured out, it completely wrong footed me. And I say when he does find Jody, like I didn't see that coming at all, like at all. Because yep. if this was an American show, this would be like six seasons, and every season he'd be finding a different kid. You know, and it's something like that. You know, you you wouldn't, it wouldn't, you wouldn't just <laughs> randomly run across her like out of absolutely nowhere with zero build up in the middle of the second season, that just wouldn't happen. Uh, and the way that does come about, where, as you say, it's, there's a, a little bit of random chance to it. It's just such a wonderful moment that he has been, he has been hallucinating Jodie. Everywhere he looks, he sees her. Uh, and then that moment, he sees the real her and he dismisses it as another kind of like imaginary thing. And then he just pauses, thinks to himself, turns around and charges back in. And it's an incredible scene that is. Uh, I love this a lot. I think mm. I think also Terry's absolutely right about the supporting cast. I think every, the texture and the humanity of all of these supporting players is extraordinary. Just the way they're, they're developed, the way they're drawn. I think uh, a number of them didn't have as much to do this time around. Like I certainly felt the, uh, the subplot with, uh, with, um, uh, with Mellon and Bernie felt a little bit like they were there because, you know, when you've got Stephen Graham, you want to use him. I don't know that it necessarily tied too well into the main plot. I do love the fact that I've just found out that Mellon's full name is Fabio Melanzola. Uh, and frankly, <laughs> if you're called Fabio, be called Fabio. <laughs> How has that not been a thing I on the show? I do not know, but... Melon is Fabio Melanzola, but that was unbelievable. A, his That's a great name in series one was it was an incredible yeah. sort of like wrong foot, wasn't it? That he was pulled in because he was uh, he's on the sex offenders register and finding out that actually he you know oh no he's only on the register because Bernie his wife you know they were together when she was fifteen, but actually there's more to it than that. Like Melon is the one who kind of gets him into that kind of underworld thing. Mm. So yeah. th there are a lot of grey areas to this show, and I really like that. Like God's like is some is a dodgy. You know, is not Ben Goss? Goss, he's got heart of gold. He's the local drug dealer. You know, I love, I love all these characters. I think they're all brilliant, and you could absolutely watch a show about any of them. I think I think that's a really interesting point, I, uh, actually. And um, it was one of the things I th and I, I still do think in a way that it's one of the things that this series does slightly less well than the first series in that maybe Lenny didn't know what to do with with characters like Melon and characters like like Tam uh, and how to bring them into the main plot of of this series whereas they were absolutely caught up in the narrative of the first series for for obvious reasons but having spoken to him boy when when Boyd and I spoke to him it's this all seems deliberate that there is a, a larger plan in place that he did know going into this series even even in series one that Sita would have a bigger role in this series for example and that uh, and that Stace would have a bigger role in this series and that uh, and that maybe maybe in a way that really helps enrich the world mm. you have you have these incredible characters you have these incredible actors like Stephen Graham and Jason Fleming and and Suran Jones almost being on the periphery of things and letting other great actors come to the fore in a way. Mm. So I'm, I'm yeah, kind of turning think, around a little bit. But all I, I think I massively disagree on, on Mellon and Bernie. I think that plot is vital to season two. And I think that's because it really does, like as James just mentioned, opens up the grey area in this world because there's a very simple story, which is a group of really bad guys take this girl and it's about a, a kind of attempt to get her back. But actually, what Stephen Graham's character embodies and this kind of grey area around um, his kind of sex offender, where he'd been on the register, as James said, because he had a relationship with the woman who's now his wife, when she was 15 there's that amazing speech where bernie says 
this this doubt that I had that was like a little voice is now really loud and that's mm. because of you Nelly and the way that Melon is vital to finding Jodie and and whatever and I'm sure we'll get into this whatever happened in that club with that young girl when he goes off with her for the night and when they have that scene in the cafe the next morning where Melon calls Nelly and he goes to meet him and he basically says you know I've just had to do something for you. I've done it for you. I've done it for you. I've done it so you can find your daughter. And you don't know what happened in that room, but you know that he's still struggling with something and and Bernie's pregnant with a daughter, which brings up loads of stuff here. I think that subplot is really, really rich. And I still have loads of questions about that and what it all means and what it signifies and what really went on. And is Melon completely kind of free of those feelings or is it something he struggles with? I think it's a real bravery for somebody to make a character like that who you fundamentally like and empathise with and you buy into the love story of him and Bernie, but there is these still lingering questions around him. Mm which made, I think, for one of the most interesting secondary plots above and beyond Jodie and Grace. That's a really interesting point. And, and yeah, no, think about that. That's actually, I, I like the fact that, as you say, you've got the, the sort of we auction off children. We've got Paul the Bricky, like the worst. Like, like When you think of like a paedophile, like a sex offender, that kind of person, it's like that's kind of what you have in your head. And then he's showing you that this is a matter of degrees. And they put Melon in there. And Melon is kind of that balancing force. So it's not black and white. It is, it is more of a sort of a slightly slippery slope. Uh, and quite, and it's and it's difficult. And I think as the audience, you know, how do you judge Melon? It's very, it's it's problematic, isn't it? On the one mm-hmm. hand, you're like you're thinking like Bernie, who's married to him, you know, she's pregnant with a daughter, and you think I totally understand why she's had this thought and she's left. And the conversation she has with him, he's like, ask me, ask me. And she was like, you know, when I was thirteen, you know, what what was it that was it the eight? What what was it that you saw in me? And she needs to understand if she's to allow him to be in the house with her child. Like, it's, uh, I mean, it's really, really dark. Yeah, I agree. I think the Mel and Bernie storyline in this series was was really good and I think the I think the bottom line for me was that it was it felt absolutely real that she would get pregnant wouldn't mm. she I mean that makes sense and and the, and then the, all of the issues that then fall out from that are feel absolutely right and you know it feels so true that she all the feelings she would have and the thoughts that would be swirling around in her head as a result of the fact that she's um, going to have a, a girl uh, I thought I thought that was just sim- simply absolutely what they would be dealing with, and so even though I guess you, what you were saying, Chris, is that her their story, particularly his story, Melon's story, is less intricately woven into yeah. the main mystery. I see that, yeah, but I feel like actually in in Lenny in Lenny's James's mind, and I feel like actually. Too true to the show, the nature of the show is it's also a social drama about these people and about this ensemble of characters that you just don't see the, these kinds of people anyway on TV. And it, it's as much about keeping us keeping us abreast of all of them, what's happening in their lives, rather than necessarily having to mm. weave them into the central mystery element of that is that is there, keeping us gripped all the way through. So I think that balance mm. between it being a character study of this ensemble and it being a riveting thriller is so is mm. so brilliantly handled. And the fact that he's then bringing in these, you know, at least bringing in a one major new character entirely, Leslie Manville's character, seeing as mm. more of Adrian Edmondson's character, Grace becoming a central player He's got bringing all of that in. So naturally, I think some, I, I would say actually Claire's story, Saran Jones's character, I think she probably suffered more, I would think, yeah. in the series for being slightly in, in left behind, if you like. But 
having said that, I think it's kind of inevitable because the focus is so much on Grace and Jodie and how that's going to play out that, you know, inevitably I feel like she doesn't get that... She definitely gets less to do than in Series 1. But then once Jodie's back, and you're like, oh my God, this is incredible. And I felt like there, her and her family, the way they had to deal with and try and cope with the return of their daughter felt incredibly real and fascinating and riveting. So, but... I guess what I'm saying in this long-winded way is he's balancing so much and inevitably some characters will slightly recede into the background compared mm-hmm. to first time around. But I also think he's playing a, a longer game here as well. Uh, he mm. talked to us a little bit. He said that he has, he's noodling around with, with series three, that he doesn't really have anything concrete yet, that the, the great idea hasn't yet grabbed him. I, I don't know whether that's just because he was talking on the record. I get the sense that there's, there's more... Uh, there's more in place than perhaps he would care to admit publicly. He sees this Absolutely. totally as a recurring drama. And, and, and in the creation of it, um, the Sky executive who commissioned it said to him, I want a recurring a recurring drama coming back, you know, for a few se- at least a few series. So I think a lot of people kind of assume because the way the story felt so um, like one central um, search for a missing girl and people thought oh you know is there going to be a series two but in his mind there was always going to be at least two and I'm pretty sure at least three so yeah I think it, 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 that is definitely what it is for him yeah recurring thing. well isn't that I think that's because and I don't want to jump ahead but I'm gonna <laughs> I think that's because the save me isn't about Jodie I think the save mm. me is about Nelly and I think the thing that has to be at the heart of every series for it to feel like save me is just Nelly I think he is the show and I think these cast of characters around him are incredible and that kind of original mystery and search for her was incredible but actually now you look at them together that was just the start of this journey and him looking for redemption and him trying to be saved and we see that again with Grace and obviously it's it's left in the finale in an incredible place, which is an amazing jumping off point for another series. So I can totally see it as a recurring series where it's just about this man's search for redemption and to be a better version of himself, which maybe he's never actually going to be able to be. Well, he has that line, doesn't he, when he's oh, found Jody and he's in the pub, but he breaks down. He's like, I don't know how to stop. Like He, he yeah. doesn't know how to climb down from this place where he's got to. Uh, and it's just really heartbreaking. So, and he performs that scene in the pub like, after he's found it. He performs that mm. magnificently. Like the amount of emotion, the stuff that's going on behind his eyes. It, I mean, it's, it's an yeah. incredible performance. He's pretty good, isn't he? He he's is. Pretty good. <laughs> he is pretty good. <laughs> he's all right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talked. What he we gives himself to do. Yeah. Boyd and I talked to him about that. I mean, he's great in all the scenes, obviously, but the scene where he finds Jody. And he goes, I don't know what to do now. And he's he goes through a thousand different yeah. emotions uh, in the space of 10 seconds. He's he's just tremendous. And, you know, can we just say as well how fucking ludicrous it is that he has just, out of nowhere, I mean, we spoke to him, I spoke to him and Nick Murphy, who directed the first series uh, for an episode of the Empire podcast whenever the first uh, series came out. And he has dabbled with writing throughout his career. This isn't something that's just arrived mm. uh, fully formed. But at the same time, it's kind of amazing that he's been hiding his writing light under a bushel for all these years mm. because he's 
brilliant. The way he captures the everyone's different cadences, everyone's different uh, speech patterns is just wonderful. I mean, this is a, a great examination of life on a London council estate, but it's a great examination of class as well. And the mm. way that he captures everybody's voices in such a wonderful, wonderful way is just it's just incredible. What a guy! It's the Leonard James Appreciation <laughs> Hour, basically. Yeah. No, but I think I think it's a good point because I I actually think he's underestimated as a writer. I think because because we know him as that guy off you know The Walking Dead now, and you know he's become such a kind of he's become an incredibly successful actor. In, in all kinds of big shows and films and stuff but I think the writing is like Dennis Potter level you know I go back to you know the singing detective and stuff like that it, 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 I think it's absolute incredible level of writing and and you're right to have all of those characters Grace just picking on one example Grace who he's he's created a teenage girl who's been through the worst trauma you can imagine and she rings so true mm. and her dialogue feels so real to me I know I've no idea what how, what 17 year old kids sound like these days but it just seems so on point and it, it, it's incredible, what an achievement. And and then to have everyone else on top of that, you know, Leslie Manville's character, who, who, you know, full of dignity and, you know, and the, the mystery of how much does she know about um, her husband, all of that. Every, all of those characters are so brilliantly written. And then you're talking about the judgment of how he then places all the, these key moments, like where he places the discovery of Jodie in the whole series. Mm. Of that. I thought that we talked about that a bit with him, but, but the, that yeah. judgment to know where to place these key moments, absolutely incredible, yeah. But there's also, it, it comes down to Nelly himself, ultimately. Mm. And I think Nelly is one of the great creations on TV, uh, any TV, uh, over the last, certainly the last five years. Uh, because he is so complex. He is so hard to pin down. He is so perplexing and infuriating. And he will make he will make the wrong decisions, mm. uh, like like James said, a dozen times. And, uh, and he... He begins, he goes after Paul, I think, in the last episode because he, he feels... I think he feels that he has to fail at something. Deep down, deep down inside, he has to fuck something up, that everything's been going too well for him. And that he has to... He, he has to ruin his own life essentially but he also maybe I think there's something else in him as well that he maybe feels a little bit invincible also mm. uh, after discovering Jody, after rescuing Grace yeah. uh, and so maybe there's a, he feels a little bit bulletproof but I think deep down inside he wants to he wants to fail he doesn't feel good enough he keeps saying throughout and you, you mentioned this during the interview with Lenny Point he keeps saying something along the lines of I'm not as clever as I thought I was or mm. I'm not that clever after all mm. when he actually really is um, you know he's one of the you know he's one of, for my money he's one of the, the great unofficial TV detectives as well and uh, you know I love watching mm. him uh, do legwork and I love watching him hunt down a case and put all the clues together um, and I think it's really interesting in that way but he's also someone who I think is, whose self-esteem is so low and who does have mental health issues as well that he deep down on some sort of level cannot allow himself to win I think he's just he's so human and I know that sounds stupid because he's a human being but he's one of the most the characters drawn with the most humanity and realism I think we've seen in that he's all of those things at the same time he's arrogant and he's deeply insecure there's a line yeah. um, he's, ta he's talking to Grace about his relationship with Zeta and he says oh I know I'm on borrowed time she's better than me she's going to get rid of me and he knows that's coming and he can't fully enjoy that moment of being with her because he knows he's not good enough for her and actually if you look at his relationship with most of the women in his life 
whether it's Stace and Teens, or, or at, at multiple points he says about each of them, either they're better than him or he's not good enough for them. Or And he's so aware of his own failures, but I think you're right in that he's compelled to keep making them. But he's also utterly charming. I mean, so charming. There's a bit where Teens walks past and he, you know, he has that bit of banter with her in the first episode about it being his birthday. And he says how good she looks. And she says, like, now who's the bullshitter? And, and just he's got <laughs> such a gorgeous charm about him. You can totally see why he's people are drawn to him and people believe in him and people want him to do well and people root for him but I think he is stuck in this cycle of of trying for this redemption and salvation but he doesn't quite know what to do with it when he gets it and it never stays within his grasp and I think he's more comfortable in a place of struggle and failure and disappointment than he is in a place of kind of happiness and contentment I don't know if he'd know what happiness and contentment look like. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that's one of the things that, that drives him away from this idea of of building a life with Jody at the end of the series. I think it's one of the things that drives his choice ultimately. There's a little part of you know, there's part of maybe there's a bit of a martyr complex in a way that he wants to be seen to be saving grace. Yes, uh, but I also think there's a little bit of he doesn't want to be happy. He doesn't. He can't allow himself to be happy and perhaps build a life with this daughter that he thinks deep down he doesn't deserve. Well, I was going to say, I'm going to say something slightly controversial, which is I don't actually think it's about Jodie or Grace. And I think he has connections with them. But, you know, he's not seen his daughter since she was um, a toddler. Yeah, a toddler, right? And they don't have a bond. They don't have a connection. They don't have a shared history. I'm not a great believer in you share genes with somebody. Therefore, you have an automatic love and connection. And I don't think that's the kind of world that Lenny James would portray. And I sent you a big rambling WhatsApp about this, Chris. But my my theory is that he takes... I blocked you so I didn't see it. <laughs> yeah, my 700-word <laughs> uh, theory. But he, took, he takes a fall for grace, which is a nice consequence because he does like being seen as kind of the saviour. But as James kind of alluded to, give it, searching for Jodie gave him a purpose and a path, hopefully, to being saved... And then he found her and he's unmoored again. It didn't work. Actually, he didn't get what he was after. And he's got this daughter he doesn't know, really. And he's got this other girl who he's made all these promises to, who again now offers him a new path at redemption. But it's not really about her either because he just wants another shot at having a purpose, having something to do. And I think you're right also in that he's kind of addicted to the struggle and the difficulty and, you know, going to prison for her will be all of those things. But I think that's the place he's most comfortable with. So I don't actually think it's about either of those girls. I think it's about Nellie, fundamentally. Yeah, I think he's. I think that's right. And I think if you go back to his past history, when we first met him, when we first see him in the pub, he he is the guy we you meet you see in a kind of in a community who's like almost famous within a community for being a dodgy geezer, isn't he? He's like he's the yeah. one. He sleeps around. He can't stick with one relationship. He can't. He, had, he he's he's effectively not got a relationship with his daughter. Um, he had you know he or, or his ex 
partner, who Saran Jones is Claire. He's he's fucked up. He is he is a fuck up basically, and 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 I think a huge part of that is, as you say, his addiction to making the wrong decision and uh, making his life complicated. I think he likes complicated, and he likes being, I think, a figure. Like in, interestingly, I thought the Luke, the climax of series on where Luke gets so furious with him, and he calls him, I believe, a bangly bang of a human being. <laughs> something is the line is something like that, and I thought that was such a brilliant moment because it kind of you suddenly see what an, another person who doesn't like him because he is incredibly likeable and charming on one level and I thought oh yeah sometimes people have such an anger about the way people are built up in a community and they mm. become you know God loves him and God worships him but other people are like he's a bit of a twat you know he's, <laughs> he's, he's abandoned all these women he's abandoned his kid you know what's there to like so I thought that reminded you of what he of the complicated nature of him and then as you say I thought there was a really interesting moment when he's got those two forked paths and he's in the car mm. and it's brilliantly directed by the way, when he don't know which of these two young women he's going to go and see, the one in being, you know, doing her, talking to the police, or the, both of them talking to police in different ways. These two paths, and it's not about them, it is about him. And he could, of course, just, his decision-making is always terrible, is often terrible, hmm. and mostly terrible, I guess, especially for a detective kind of character. But he, he could just go, look, to his daughter, he could just go, look, I've got to deal with this with this other girl who's I've become involved with her life. I have a, I have a duty of care for her. Can you just hold on for a minute? I'll be back. You know, he could just kind of sort it out if he really wanted to. And I just kept thinking, just sort it out, you know, just, just be honest with both of them and tell them the situation you've got yourself in. It'll be fine. But no, he kind of just decides to go one down one route and it'll be fine. He is, he is, in, you know, it's all be fine. It's going to work. And then, of course, deep down, he knows it's not going to be fine. He knows that that way of doing things is just mess. It's just messy. And, and, difficult and going to create more nightmares for him. So let's talk a little bit more forensically about there there are two huge revelations that that come in the last three episodes. Uh, let's talk a little bit more forensically about the the one that we go out on, which is Nellie's fake confession and he takes the rap for the murder of Gideon Charles. Uh, what do we think about that? Jimbo in some ways inevitable <laughs> like i did i didn't i kind of towards the end it, i mean i won't say i saw it coming but it didn't surprise me not just least of all because it's another terrible decision from nelly but again it's as terry said like his need for redemption is absolute and when he makes that decision which again i found maddening because i'm like for fuck's sake just call shola and reschedule it it's not rocket science but you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but the fact that he just turns up and he, and to a certain extent, made the right decision. He was there for his daughter, but this other girl's relying on him and he's not there. It's like he had to find a way to address that. And this was the kind of the nuclear option, wasn't it? He's gone in. He's got her off the hook. I mean, Shola knows he didn't do it. She all but said so in the interview, but she can't argue with it. He's providing her with physical proof and a confession. And, you know, he's, he's getting her out. So you've got to think, like, where does this leave the story where does this leave him because it, it doesn't ring true to kind of dispose of this instantly in sort of series three say oh actually it wasn't me because of x y and z you know what i mean it's like how do you play this on but equally you can't have a series where nelly's in prison for the whole time you know do you see is there like a time jump but then frankly i'm fairly certain that the sentence for murder is quite lengthy so you know i i, I have no <laughs> idea where this is going to go absolutely none i mean I, ne I never see stuff coming i have to admit i am terrible at, at working out how the things are going to be resolved in storylines in films and tv so i'm the, but i i thought it was brilliant how far he got into that plot line and still surprised me personally mm. 
with what Nelly had it was going to do. And, I, and I'm trying to remember the exact point in which I think Nelly decided this is what we're going to do probably quite late in the day. But I think it was always percolating in the background as an option, isn't it? It's always like, how far can he go to save? Once he knew, once Grace told him that she stabbed the mm. guy, stabbed the, the, the child abuser, Aid Edmondson's character, Gideon, then I, th- I thought, oh, there must be a thing that's... But I thought it was brilliantly handled that so much was happening that you don't think, oh, he's just going to do mm. that. He's just going to take the rap for it until pretty much for me, he does. And then I felt it, 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 it's, it's kind of the perfect ending, I think, well, because it was totally true for his character that instead that he's just going to rush into this, this, take this, take this nuclear option, as you say, even though it's ridiculous in all kinds of ways. And then the consequences, and then down the consequences, that will all sort itself out later. And I think probably Lenny, as I, I don't know, I feel like as the creator of the show, and he kind of hinted at it a bit when we talked about, when Chris and I talked to him, I feel like he'll work out the best way of, with a time jump, I'm sure it will be roughly 18 months to two years before we see Series 3 anyway. And I'm you know, there's all kinds of things that could happen, couldn't there? There could be like, well, someone's going to work out that actually she did it at some point, you know, that... Uh, and someone's going to work out that he didn't do it. So he could start off in prison and then there could be a, a narrative interweaving of what happening in the present with the past. There's all kinds of ways around it, uh, having a series where he is in prison, mm. put it that way. So I think it actually, it just worked as an ending. It just rang true with his character. That's the main but thing. But it also, they managed to it. keep it from being an option because his plan was always to frame Paul the Bricky. And it's only right. when he vanishes right. yeah. that you realise his options yes. have now gone. And when he's sitting in the car and, and when he goes up and it's shuttered and he can't eat, and he realises he's yeah. fucked it up. You, this is almost the only option left to him. What I love about this show is this is a show that doesn't believe in happy endings, that happy endings are not always that likely. And also for people like this in the world they live in, like this isn't a world of happy endings and this isn't a scenario that ends well. And, I, and mm. the dangling threads, we don't know what's happened to Paul. You know, we don't know the full extent of what's happened to Jodie. You know, it's horrifying what you do find out about it. Uh, and the moment when she... Yeah, there's no way he's leaving Paul. No, completely there? not. There's no way he's yeah. just leaving The minute that. when she yeah. sees the reaction she has when she sees the picture of Paul on his phone is absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, there's, there's so much left to... To, to explore and that's just taken into element uh, into account the elements we already know about let alone what else he'll, he'll introduce for the next series when um, I kind of worked out what was going to happen when you know you saw the yellow puff jacket with the, and he was looking at the blood stains mm. on it and then um, you knew that the knife was hidden in the pub I was like oh god and yeah, I could see it and I was really frustrated because I didn't want it to end like that because I needed I felt like I needed some sense of justice because you know Gideon even though he'd been killed he'd been acquitted in court or you know found not guilty and mm. Paul had escaped and I felt like kind of all the bad guys were getting away and I was so frustrated that I could see Nelly was going to make another terrible decision <laughs> but then when it ended there I actually did find it really satisfying the way it was done because it felt so true to the character and I think you're right in terms of the time jump it actually reminded me very much of This Is England 86 where Combo takes the rap for Lol's dad being murdered and actually there was a hot like he put his own hand over the hammer so that his fingerprints won it which was very much like the scene where Nelly put his own fingerprints on the knife and actually I remember that in This Is England being a, a trigger for a whole new richness a whole new plot around kind of 
what you owe somebody after something like that, what it does to you going through something like that when you're innocent, um, the different kind of redemption in society once you've been convicted for something you didn't do. There's a whole load of new stuff that I think it brings up, which actually I think will make for a really interesting um, and probably completely different in many respects third series. I think this is a a drama that's going to keep reinventing itself in really interesting ways each time. Um, and he, he did say as well in our, in our interview, I'm uh, sorry for recycling stuff he said, but uh, he did talk about that, you know, the idea of his story might not stand up to much scrutiny and mm. it might fall apart. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a recent episode of, a, of another television show uh, <clears throat> that I, I like about uh, calling someone called Saul, uh, in which um, a character is asked by another character to repeat a bullshit story over and over again. And every time they tease out something that, that doesn't quite ring true, every time it's repeated. And I get the feeling that might happen. Like under, under oath on the stand, uh, you know, would his story tally with Grace's, for example? Mm. I'm not entirely mm. sure, but uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens. And would Grace let him go down for it? You know, that's the other yeah, big right. question is Grace. I thought, yeah. you know, Grace may be the one who actually blamed him in anger, at him abandoning her, but she didn't do that. And actually, she is a person who has a kind of a sense of, of right and wrong, I think, and of actually she's been through this terrible thing but has a similar moral code to Nellie's I think so I wondered actually how's he going to make sure that she goes along with it how is she not going to break mm. at some point she has great love and affection for Nellie and I'm not fully convinced that she will allow him to take the fall for this and go to prison for her at all and they have no, I agree Totally. They haven't had that chance to, to, to make their stories match up. No, exactly. He hasn't, he hasn't gone no. there and said, this is what I'm no. going to tell them happened and you, your story has to match mine exactly, like down to the nth degree. So I think it might, it might fall apart uh, at, at some but point. He got Claire involved, didn't he? So it, I guess he, it, one, I assume that Claire's going sort of to tell her, <laughs> tell, her what, tell her what's going on. Well, but he yeah. also calls Jennifer as well, as, as, we, as we, we discussed. He Jennifer, calls sorry, Jennifer, I meant Jennifer, not yeah. Claire. Sorry, oh, yeah, I meant yeah, Jennifer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So exactly. perhaps Jennifer is going to tell her, tell Grace yeah, right. to go along with the story and hear the details exactly. and you have to stick to it yeah. or, or, or else. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, so you know, this country has a very interesting uh, attitude, I would say, towards uh, female victims of, of violence um, in, certain, in terms of the courts and in terms of justifiable homicides and, and violence um to abusers, violence towards abusers. Um, so, Terry, what is he? What is in a way? What is he saving Grace from? What would she be liable to? How long would she be liable to go to prison for? They wouldn't, for example, turn a blind eye or turn the other cheek and say, "Oh, it's fine. You went through a, a, a horrible ordeal at Gideon's hands." Would they? No, and there's a sense of, you know, is it self-defence in the moment because he presented an immediate threat, or is it revenge for what she'd been through? previously but even in self-defense there are there are women serving really really long sentences for scenarios in which they were defending themselves and I think you know he says to her at one point you will go to prison for a long time and I think that's the reality is that he knows that if she was tried and convicted and she would be convicted um then she would be looking at probably a decade or more in prison. And I think that's part of what he's saving her from because he thinks he can probably handle prison better than she can. And part of him probably thinks she deserves a fresh start. She's been through this awful trauma 
and she deserves another chance at, at making a life for herself. Whereas, you know, if, if Nelly kind of thinks he's lost, in some sense has lost forever anyway, then what difference does it make if he's the one who goes to prison? But he's also, he's not mm-hmm. completely throwing himself on his sword, but he does say that he was on her when he got there and the only way he could get him off her was to stab him. So he, he's kind of put a kind of defence of others defense in place before he confesses to it so theoretically it could be that he gets like three years five years or something for that for sort of second degree manslaughter and then we rejoin him as he gets out of prison which again i think i don't i don't know if you'd go for that because i don't know how realistic it is because even though as you say he's clearly put that defense out there the reality is that he has publicly kind of you know went off at him in the court they know that he blames him for the disappearance of his daughter and that he thinks he's involved um, there's a whole load of kind of history there which would suggest that Nelly could easily have killed him in cold blood. Mm. And and what would have happened to Gideon if Grace hadn't have actually got there first is is another question, right? Yeah. Mm. I mean, for example, Shola, that the first first person she thinks of, first place she goes is the palm tree oh, and Nelly. Yeah. So we, we talked about this in dispatches already, but the, the idea that I think is really, really clever, the way he shifts our attention away from the search for Jody. The idea that I I feel that the idea is that everyone's kind of given up. They've they've written her off as Mm -hmm. dead, pretty much. And even though Nelly still has visions of her and still won't say it out loud, I still think that I think that's probably the way that even he's beginning to think. And then all of a sudden, bam, she's there. End of episode four. And it took me by surprise to the point where I thought I was having a hallucination, to be honest. I rewound it and watched the whole section again Mm because I was like, what just happened? (laughs) Yeah. Even, Even when he was bringing her to Claire, I was like, this is a dream. This is there's something there's something not right here, or it's it's like the the end of the the first series where mm. he thinks it's Jody, but it's not Jody because he's he's willing himself to believe it's Jody, but it's not. It's actual Jody. So what do we make of that? Well, the the question I had first and foremost. So he it's the and perhaps it's me, but it, they don't. He doesn't make it absolutely nailed on clear. I thought quite how he found us. So and my understanding of this is so he's he's gone to uh, the bar where the auction took place, and he to try and find this. Or he's gone to Gideon's place to try and find the thumb drive, hasn't he? He's gone there. Someone has researched it. He can't find it. Uh, he speaks to to Grace, and she's like, "I don't know anywhere else. I know the insides of places. I don't know the outsides of places. I can't tell you anywhere else." So he pulls out the piece of paper. Now, my understanding from that piece of paper is that is the list of addresses that he got from Gideon's wife. When, Am I right in saying this? Yes. Uh, Yes, I believe so. Yeah, when she's incredibly forthcoming and gives every possible address she can think of, but and he go and he's just going through those various addresses and presumably that apartment is something that because she tells Gideon the addresses that she's given yeah. and she's given him his other address, she's given him his brother's address, his parents' address. Like I say, very thorough. And then I don't know what this one is. Like, is it just a, an apartment he owned? Is it something? I can't quite work she's- out what this address is. She said um, when she was telling Gideon the list, the last one she said was the old place in Stepney. Right, and she doesn't okay. elaborate any more than that. The other ones, yeah, it's a brother's house in Hampstead, mum and dad's yeah. house. And then she says the old place in Stepney, which I took to be this address that they so, maybe lived in years ago. And, you know, and essentially he'd made it into a house for these trafficked yeah. Girls, because it's interesting because this is not just like she's being kept there. She's clearly being moved around. She's being trafficked. Mm. The woman who's with her is clearly sort of like her. It's I'm looking after isn't really the word, is it? But almost like she's the one who's pimping her out for yeah, presumably a yeah. larger organisation. And like yeah. my understanding, so is 
So on the one hand, so we understand now how it is obviously incredible serendipity that he happened to be that at the exact time, just as she was being moved out of that apartment, which presumably she'd been kept in for a period of time uh, while on the move. And then, but who are, who is this larger organization of people and how is, you know, how was Gideon connected to them? Because when you have the, the auction, like Gideon, talks about Jodie as a piece of property that he owns. But there are lots more layers to this, isn't it? Because when uh, when Lenny goes to the caravan and he finds Grace chained up there, we learn later on that actually Grace wasn't being sold. She was actually paid to a certain extent by Gideon to be there to almost pretend yeah. to be there and that's a that's whole layer that's not not really illuminated in great detail but it adds another like her uh, Grace's relationship to Gideon was very complicated she wasn't his slave she was enthralled by him to a certain extent and he would put her in there and she said I think the line was that no one will care that she's not Jodie when we get there so was she there to fool the buyer into thinking that she was Jodie and then what was the buyer going to do with her? I was a little unclear about the details surrounding that. Well, I think it's because obviously with what went down at the auction with Nelly, I think mm. they knew obviously somebody was onto them and put Grace in as kind of a decoy. And I think with the relationship with Gideon, obviously, he, what was she, 13? Like he, that is classic grooming. Yeah. And, you know, that makes it actually easier to traffic girls if you tr if you groom them into believing they're in a relationship with you. But I think the one of the unexplained things for me was how Luke came to know that ring because obviously the whole start of this was, as you yeah. said, James, you know, they catfish his daughter, she comes down and she ends up in the hands of this paedophile ring and you see her getting in the car and that's the last you see of her until Nelly finds her in this house and it's very clear very quickly that she has been with that gang and she's been brutalised by the same men that brutalised Grace. For a year and a half. For a year and a half and Zita and lots of other girls you know. Zita knew who Gideon was and who the men in that club were and this is clearly an extensive paedophile ring in that part of London but what isn't explained and what I've never been able to work out and I don't know if any, any of you guys have is how did Luke know that gang and set yeah. up that and why I, that I was the next didn't. kind of logical thing my understanding was that luke didn't know them but he just put out um the image of um of jody out on the internet i think he says at one point i oh, would just put it on youtube or something like that um in the final episode where he's being interrogated in that lock-in and i think he says he basically says it was all kind of just an accident it all just happened that they he, they put he put that picture out there to to get back at to get back um at nelly and all of that for his psychopathic reasons and then everything that happened after that was kind of by chance and, and so but, you know but how if they because they arranged to pick her up from the library right or from outside that center so that was done by luke and his mate because obviously they'd arranged yeah. for her to come and meet yeah. them. So how did the paedophile ring know that they'd arranged that with her to be the ones to pick her up? Do you know what I mean? There must have because been I a think conversation they had got at in some touch point. With, yeah, I think they'd got in touch with him after he put that out there on the internet, yeah. So they approached him, and I think from then on it just ballooned into something that, yeah, got out of his control. That's, but yeah, I think it's left slightly vague, but that's my understanding that they, they had got in touch with him shadowy figures part of the paedophile ring and from then on it just became this horrendous thing but going back to the um that moment so the, going back to the chance the element of chance which is what i think you know people find interesting i think uh, as chris said right at the beginning you don't i don't have a problem with i don't have that much of a problem with coincidence and chance and i think where it rings true is because then he later on after when he's in when, that night he's like oh this just happened 
purely by accident and by chance. And if I hadn't been there five mm. minutes early or five minutes later, I wouldn't have seen her. And that is, and I think all of that rings true for me. And that th- things like this do happen in life. Life is, life, you know, moment, incredible moments like this occur. And so I think it was brilliantly done. And to have, to have him, it's, it's those stages of the sequence, aren't they? Where first of all, he sees her in the park, which it isn't her and it is an apparition. Mm. To kind of which functions, I think, in multiple ways. It does remind you of her because you haven't been thinking of her for a while. I think you're right, but it also underlines that he has these visions. And then when he does see her, and he doesn't trust his own mind, his own brain, that it really is her, and does that double take, and then carries on walking. First of all, and then goes yeah. back is an incredible moment. So that is unbelievably powerful. Then he has the fight with the woman, the minder, yeah. which was by you know we've almost forgotten about that. That's an unbelievable, it's incredible. Isn't it? like, he is having to beat up this fucking woman, which obviously you know is 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 a big deal. That's a lot to deal with. Um, and in the end, punches her out, doesn't he? He punches yeah. her lights out, and then has to reunite with Jodie who hasn't seen as, as we say since she was a toddler and all of that I mean a relentless series of the most intense moments in one's life are dramatised so brilliantly and performed so brilliantly that's what I thought was incredible that's why I think this you know this that sequence of events and the way it's done elevates this series to me to like absolute like masterpiece standards just because of how it was done that moment after he's knocked out the minder and he's like and you can see there's a bit like in his head i don't think he 100 percent believes that jody's there like he he's not sure like no, at no. all like yeah, no. he just thinks i've just broken into someone's flat and just punched a woman in the face like what <laughs> yeah. the fuck and then he f- sort of senses her behind him and he realizes and that's the you know the the mm. key sort of emotional core of it but it's 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 a hell of a thing I didn't find it. I saw a few people on social media saying, oh, I think I found it kind of that level of coincidence really hard to believe. But I agree with you guys. That's life, right? Mm. I found Mm. that a a commitment to realism as opposed to the opposite, because if it had been intricately plotted and, you know, Mm. all these twists and turns to get there, that would have seemed more contrived to me. The fact that he's just like in quite a pedestrian way working through this list happens to see her. The door swings. I mean, just think if that door hadn't swung and he hadn't seen her, half of her in that crack. Mm. And then as you say, backtracked when he thought actually maybe Mm. it wasn't my imagination. I found that more realistic than anything. I mean, it shocked the hell out of me. Like you guys, I literally watched it three times because I was like... That can't be her. Who do, who does that in the middle of a series? Yeah. It's not the finale. Mm. It's it's the mm. middle of the series. I couldn't believe he just dropped this amazing moment that we've been waiting for for a series and a half. But actually, when it happens, you realise that isn't the thing you've been waiting for because all that does is set up a whole new level of drama with Grace and with the sense of anticlimax that he clearly feels once he's found her and how is Jodie going to recover and bringing Claire back into it. But just doing that is such a bold choice just to drop it in the middle mm-hmm. when nobody's expecting it. When he's worked really hard uh, along with the, uh, the the various directors as well to make you forget about it. It's, mm. not, it's not even that because it, it, the, the, the search for Jodie drove the first series. It was the first mm. series. Uh, and this one, it shifts into something else. Uh, it shifts into a murder mystery for a couple of episodes, except we all really know who did it <laughs> right from the off. And then at the end of pretty much this episode three, pretty much is like, oh yeah, no, she she did it, Grace did it. So then it removes the murder mystery element. So in a way, perhaps having the discovery of Jodie at the fourth episode gives the rest of the show a, a, a new impetus, which is interesting mm. because it could have, it could easily have been very anticlimactic. I don't think it is. It does. The cathartic element of it is inc- supreme, though. I was so yeah. moved. I was like, Definitely. you know, it is unbelievably viscerally 
um, cathartic. And yeah, you're right. Then once it, then the implications play out, you know, and 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 the sense of all everything else he has to deal with afterwards. That's what make, that's what makes this show so great. And interestingly, he talks about how when he was. The, the directors that worked on it, he didn't want, you know, directors of thrillers and crime dramas. He wanted directors of... So, you know, you've got, you know, Ken Loach's son directing it and all that. And and I think um, that's because he doesn't see it as a crime thriller. or, or He sees it as a, as, as, a, as a character drama with crime thriller elements that make the whole recipe f- work so perfectly. And the, and that and the whole scene around Discovering Jody reflects all of those elements, I think. The only thing I was going to say is the only other plot point I wonder if people haven't seen Series 1 recently is the the girl who comes to take Grace away who then sits down with Bernie to talk about, which is, uh, mm. Terry, as you said, who works in that sort of brothel and who'd spend that time with men. It's Because, it's, again, it's it, they, this is not a show that spoon feeds you. Uh, you know, it's like, keep up, pay attention, or there you go. And I, I had a moment there. I was thinking, who is she? I know I'm supposed to remember who she is. I can't quite remember. And it wasn't until, Terry, you said that she's the one that, that Melon goes off with. Mm. And I say you you don't know what happened with them in series one, and you don't really know in this one either. All you know is that clearly whatever she told Bernie was enough that it made her feel safe. But did she tell Bernie the truth? Right, because the the state of Melon the next day after he spent obviously several hours with this girl privately. Mm. And he's, you know, he's he's been drinking. He's he vomits in the sink. He's crying. He's like, and he references a couple of times. I've had to do something, you know, awful. And that could be many things, many many things. And you kind of, I believe he didn't have sex with her, and that he he didn't do that. But it's that enough of a doubt is left and that's the doubt that Bernie picks up on but again it's like a brilliant narrative choice not to show you what she tells Bernie in the pub you see Melon watching them you see them talking you have no idea what Mm. he said you still have no idea what happened privately between them Um, and she's I think you'd imagine going to be another recurring character potentially given more of a prominent role going forward and how all of these people are interconnected and how she knows grace because when she turns up when grace has disappeared with zeta's son you're like oh she's back hang on how does she and you start to plot it all together um and just the fact that they don't spoon feed us that and don't give us a satisfactory answer to that Mm. you figure bernie's got a satisfactory answer because she leaves the pub with melon but what did happen and what are the consequences for melon going forward because he's still clearly fabio (laughs) fabio Fabio is still clearly (laughs) tormented by something right absolutely absolutely that just just occurred to me the uh, the other thing that we we haven't really talked about is obviously the major new addition is leslie manville's character as gideon's wife and the relationship that 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 nelly has with her is is a fascinating one because it goes from conciliatory to massively aggressive to almost like you know sympathetic like they go as the realization because when we start with her you think well how does she feel on this she's in court with gideon she's is she excusing him is she complicit but it becomes clear that she's in denial like she can't make sense of her life if the man she's been married to is not just a pedophile but you know a man who auctions children like a serial sex uh, trafficker of, of people and uh, and just the realization of that and I think there's a wonderful scene she has when she's talking to her sister where she breaks down about how whole her whole life has been a lie that he never loved her because he couldn't do because she's not what he likes and it's oh, it's, it's hideous. Mm. 
I mean, the scene where she sees the wallpaper, which corresponds oh, with God. Grace's testimony. So in court, the she talks room. about the mm. dancing room, the wallpaper where she was first taken. Yeah. And there's an incredible scene where she follows, Jennifer follows Gideon into the house, sees the wallpaper. And in that moment, the reality of the truth of the situation comes crashing down around mm. her. I mean, Leslie Manville, Christ almighty, if you're going to get anybody to play that role, you will get <laughs> Leslie Manville to play that mm. role. But even just the, the conversation between her and Nellie is so beautifully done. There's a bit where he says to her, "I was." I'm, he apologises for how he was and he says, I was clumsy with you. I was, And it was like Boyd was saying earlier, those bits of dialogue mm. when, because he was really brutal with her because he blamed her to some extent for what her husband had done and he just says oh I'm sorry I was clumsy with you I was clumsy with you and it's such a beautiful way of of describing how kind of brutally he handled her but you're right there's a sense of empathy but underlying it really is you feel like he Nellie's still really has one thing in mind which is how can you help me find both Gideon and then how can you help me find my daughter um but he does you they do develop this lovely understanding I think of each other one of the things we haven't talked about <laughs> weird enough is Gideon and the decision to bump him off in the first episode because I have to say I I thought that he was going to be I love Adrian Edmondson and I think he's really awful in the role in the best possible way <laughs> yeah I thought it you know I was hoping against hope it might end up with a bottom style frying pan fight between <laughs> between Nelly <laughs> and Gideon <laughs> yeah, but I, I thought that Gideon might be the quarry over the over the over this series mm. and immediately in a series that, that's filled with rug pulls uh, comes the first rug pull which is no he's dead and uh, now it's a murder mystery mm. suck on that that's what separates this from so many other shows is exactly that. It's like it sets up so many things and it doesn't follow through in the way you think. Um, and and he's he is played extremely well. He's a he's absolutely loathsome character, but Edmondson plays him beautifully. And the scene he has in the kitchen with Grace is that's yeah. really cold as well. It's just yeah, it's played and written to perfection all the way through this. And we've talked about already the texture of the dialogue and the language that he uses, whether it be the slang, the nicknames, all of it. There, it just rings true in a way that whether or not you're familiar with you know this world or these you know these this because as James has said, like when. When he grew up, like Nelly is kind of based on people that he knew, sort of the the, the man who holds court in the London local. Mm. You know, that's where it comes from. So all of this rings very true because I think a lot of it is drawn, you know, from 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 characters that he knows and characters he's familiar with. But there's so much verisimilitude to this. It's just it is extraordinary. But I think just to touch upon the um, you were saying, Chris, about you know at the end of the first episode, killing off Gideon. But of course. I think one of the, again, another reason why I thought series two is even better than series one is even credible chief is the way he does have um, it, it cut up timelines and he does, there are flashbacks and flash forwards and you're not quite sure how it's working. I think in, in episode two, after that revelation that he's the one that's been killed and that there is going to be this mystery element. Then he's, he, he, then he kind of makes it quite complicated because you do see more of Aid Edmondson way more than you think you're going to because mm-hmm. you have flashbacks to the court case and all of that. Um, so I thought, and that and that worked so intricately and so well the way the way he mixes around the timelines without without literally t- putting on the screen where where you are and what what the date is and all of that. I thought that storytelling worked so brilliantly. So that's why I think, as much as anything, it was a brilliant choice to to kill him off in the end of the first episode because it then leads to an incredible amount of fascinating storytelling that's going to go on filling in of the blanks of what he's like and what he did exactly and then 
how his wife didn't know, absolutely did not know. Because at first you're you're with you're with um, you're with Lenny Lenny. You're thinking, oh, he, he, she 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 surely should have known. And that relationship, as it develops, it was beautifully handled. That scene where they're sitting there by the river, and he does realise that she he's been overly harsh to her, as you would be. Such a beautifully done scene, incredible, yeah. Tremendous stuff. Uh, I cannot wait. I mean, I hope that they, they do make a third series. Um, Whenever Lady James has has some <laughs> has some spare time on his hands, I don't know what his fear of the Walking Dead commitments are these days, but uh, we'll find out soon. I'm guessing. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm really excited to see where they take the story, and uh, I want to see Paul brought to justice. Mm. Fuck mm. Paul. Fuck yeah. Paul. Got but you. isn't that a great strand that's been left? Because they introduce him, he's immediately terrifying. Mm. Grace's account of what he did to her, and there's a small flashback. Oof. It's just. I mean, it's one of the most traumatising things in the entire series, but it's so slight and it's it's just kind of dropped in and left. And then when he goes back to get him, you, you're like, okay, great. This is going to be, he's going to frame Paul. This is how it's going to end. This is really satisfying. I can totally get on board with this. And then he's fucking locked up his shop and fucked <laughs> off. And you're like, what is happening? How can you have set this up and taken it away from us at the same time? And you have to hope, as you say, there's now, we have a character who could still be brought to justice and could still be found and I think we need I need certainly the sense that somebody there'll be some semblance of justice for what these girls have been through however let's be honest and I think this is kind of to your point earlier Chris the reality is that a lot of girls don't get justice and statistically Mm -hmm. most girls don't get justice especially in cases like this and especially with grace with girls from difficult backgrounds from working class backgrounds who may have a history of difficulties within their family and substance abuse and things like this this is kind of how it goes and I think to not kind of capitulate to viewers who need like me who need a resolution and need justice to feel good about it but actually to present a much more realistic picture is again kind of Lenny James doing what he doing what he does right which is to go well this is the this is the truth of it but mm. I do mm. I do feel kind of a little bit soothed by Paul being out there and and hopefully <laughs> getting his just desserts I know what's going to happen I Go know on. what's going to happen uh, Tam's going to take Nelly to the medium and the medium's going to find Paul. That's what's, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> that medium bit was brilliant, by the way. Like, mm. Yeah. We shall see what happens in series three. And when that happens, we will be back here, hopefully with Lenny James in tow as well for another spoiler special. But for now, that is it for our Save Me Too spoiler special. Hope you've enjoyed this unique collaboration between Empire and Pilot. Uh, our next Empire slash Pilot collaboration will be... When will it be, guys? I'll probably just, you know, gate crash one of your sessions and talk about Blue Bloods for 10 minutes and just repeat the points I've I've said ad infinitum on the show before. But uh, I'm planning something. No, I'm planning one imminently, uh, but until it's 100% confirmed, I don't want to say exactly what it is. Uh, But with any luck, there will be one very soon. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think I know. Yes, what Chris knows about. what I'm it talking is, about. It is exciting. It, it is, is exciting. very exciting. It is exciting. I'm also working on something which will be very exciting <laughs> if it comes off. It is Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> but the first one, the first season, the one with Lorne Green. Yeah. 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 Tam and the medium are going to get Lorne Green and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the one I feel comfortable talking about get Glenn A. Larson in here come on medium you can make it happen um, 
And of course, uh, if you're if you are listening to this, it means you are a subscriber to the Empire Spoiler Specials. You're you're behind the paywall. Thank you, of course, for doing that. Your support is much appreciated, and we are keeping the spoiler specials coming. You're going to get weekly Mandalorian spoiler specials until that series finishes on Disney Plus. You're also going to get uh, some retro spoiler specials, starting off with Gareth Evans uh, talking in depth about the raid, which will be up. Uh, so this is Monday. So you're going to get it probably tomorrow, probably Tuesday, but. But um, I've made promises, wild promises before in the podcast and, and not delivered. So let's, let's see how that one goes. Um, and of course, the regular uh, podcast, the Empire podcast is out every single Friday. Do listen to it, of course, if you can. And the Pilot TV podcast is out every Monday as well. And I, I hear it comes very highly recommended. So <laughs> not by you. <laughs> no, not, not by me. Of course, I'm furious that it exists. Uh, but uh, do listen to it as well every Monday. That, how, that is so magnanimous of me, Terry. I know, I Can know. Can you believe? that I imagine your testicles are going up inside your body right now (laughs) if I could find them I would let you know (laughs) anyway uh, that is it I've had a great time uh, and it is goodbye from Boyd Hilton goodbye yeah that's generally that's what happens Boyd you say goodbye whenever I say your name Jesus Christ I say goodbye Time to put the TV on, boys. <laughs> Retreat for the safety yeah, of the TV. I've got a parliamentary select committee to watch. Boyd's like the reverse ring. He tries to crawl into the TV. <laughs> <laughs> it is goodbye from Terry White. See ya. See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. Uh, it is goodbye from James Dyer. Call me Fabio. <laughs> it's goodbye from Fabio Melanzola. <laughs> That's the best bit of trivia. <laughs> if, if you'd brought that to the Empire podcast, you would have won the facts, hands down. Uh, the weekly yeah. facts section, hands down. Uh, and it is goodbye from me. I am off to sing I Try by Macy Gray, but perhaps not in the right key. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>